1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile
0: banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
2: You're listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. What's up, Dan?
3: There's a little bit of rain outside. There's extensive news coverage of the the passing of Queen Elizabeth. It is a a busy podcast recording day in Tinseltown.
2: Yes, and this is episode 184, our Emmy preview. Dan, of course, is here to help you with your Emmy ballot. And we've got a fantastic interview with the executive producers of Abbott Elementary and Harley Quinn.
3: Lots of good content.
2: But, you know, while we are talking about The Queen, you can go back and listen to our fabulous interview with Peter Morgan, the showrunner of The Crown. That came out November 22nd, 2019, where we definitely asked him about the end of the show.
3: Indeed, lots of, lots of people on, on Twitter making jokes about watching the final season of The Crown playing out on TV. I'm not sure if I find most of those jokes funny. I do, however find much humor in people making fun of different corporate entities for their tributes to queen elizabeth so far the best i've seen it's a tie between paris hilton and domino's pizza so good times boy twitter is ghoulish some days (laughs)
2: yeah a good reminder that if you don't have anything nice to say or it doesn't make sense for you to touch on this you don't have to
3: You know, everyone's everyone's entitled to grieve or reflect as they see fit.
2: (laughs) Sure. Thanks. Thanks for doing that, Domino's.
3: Exactly. I, I feel like I can now sleep at night or something to that effect.
2: Well, enough about that. Let's dive into this week's top headlines and get things going.
3: Number one.
2: Leading off, HBO Max has renewed Pretty Little Liars, Original Sin, for a second season, joining And Just Like That and Gossip Girl as the streamer's third legacy title to earn a sophomore season.
3: Rapper and artist Vince Staples will lead the cast of a semi autobiographical comedy series for Netflix from blackish creator Kenya Barris. In other new series pickups, Freebie. Freebie. I even give you time there. Uh, the former IMDb-TV uh, celebrated Norman Lear's 100th birthday with a series order for the prolific and venerable producers' comedy Clean Slate, starring George Wallace and Laverne Cox.
2: And in news from the pre-holiday news dump rutherford falls has been canceled after two seasons at peacock as sources tell me the streamer did not want to bring the show back for its second season but producers universal television instead offered to pay for the whole season in a bid to keep prolific producer mike sure who of course is based there with an overall deal and exec produced keep him happy
3: yeah i don't know what they're doing at peacock it's there's just no there's no logic to any of it and we've talked and ranted Many, many times about the confusing creative direction there, but the idea that they had to be convinced to bring back a second season of an extremely well-reviewed, extremely progressive and important show from some extremely talented producers, it just makes me scratch my head about but if no one
2: watched it and it was an expensive show and you're at a point where all of your budgets are under increasing scrutiny when you're being asked to do more with less money. It's not surprising, you know, especially when you have a studio offering to pay for the entire second season. That's a no-brainer. You, it makes financial. There's a financial incentive to keep it going because you don't have to pay for it. That's sure, I understand I that about. part.
3: I just don't understand why it had to come to that. I don't. It, no one
2: watched. I and if a tree and, falls in the forest, does it get a second season? I don't know. That's I bad don't. Pun, I
3: though. don't know what that means. But what I do know is that if you are starting a new streaming service, yes, you want a breakout hit, whatever. But another of the things that you might want to do, in my opinion, is either a cultivate. A, supportive critical community. B, cultivate a supportive creative community. And I would put those two in the opposite orders. Obviously, it's more important to support the creative community than critics. Regardless... It makes it makes no sense to to have a quick trigger finger on a on a show of quality. If you're trying to establish any sort of brand, any sort of audience, any sort of relationships and just seeing the shows that keep pouring out of Peacock, it. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll at least touch on another one of them later in this podcast, one that premiered earlier this week that's garbage. It, I, I'm just confused by the whole thing.
2: Yeah, and we're still waiting for word on some shows that are not, not not in the garbage category. Girls 5 Eva, one of my personal favorites, and the Queerest Folk Revival, which, you know, going back to Rutherford Falls here, another important show for a, a very important community and obviously one close to my heart. And I love the show. So I'm, I love both of them. I'm rooting for both. But who knows at this point?
3: Anyway, you can listen to our interview with uh, Rutherford Falls creator Sierra Teller-Ornelas from April 2021, and that would be episode 116. Over on broadcast... Fox has greenlit a return of the format Farmer Wants a Wife, which uh, aired at some point on, I guess, it was either the CW or might have been going back to the WB. Anyway, one of my all-time favorite credit sequences, the Farmer Wants a Wife credit sequence, not available in any form on YouTube. Anyway, the format has been uh, very, very successful in other countries. Uh, it was not hugely successful here because every time I mentioned that there was a show called Farmer Wants a Wife to random Americans, people get confused. Other people go, "Ooh, I love that show when it was on Australia or whatever. Uh, Fox also ordered the competition series Special Forces uh, featuring, quote unquote, celebrities uh, going through, quote unquote, training. Um, Yay. And they're developing a new scripted drama from Desperate Housewives and Why Women Kill Creator Mark Cherry.
2: And wrapping up headlines with, I'm going to put this in air quotes, ratings news, Amazon claims 25 million people watched The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, Power of the Ring, The Ring 2, The Rings, The Reckoning, The Ringening, in its first day. Though we haven't a clue if that metric means they watched the trailer that autoplays on the Amazon homepage, or if they completed an episode or two. Imagine if Amazon marketed all of its originals the way it has for Lord of the Rings, Dan.
3: I heaven knows... What would happen, uh, we did say last week when we talked on the podcast about the early ratings news for House of the Dragon and its quick renewal, that HBO was always going to have an advantage in that situation because HBO gives out tangible numbers and HBO's numbers are reported. And while we understand that certain of HBO's numbers give a only partial or incomplete portrait of how many people are watching HBO shows, at least there are apples-to-apples comparisons that you can make both to other TV shows in the landscape but also to other HBO shows because we know how various HBO shows do, not just the one or two that are actually huge successes. We were never going to know that for Amazon. And so 25 million people watching Lord of the Rings sounds like an awful lot, but we have absolutely no idea how many people watched. Well, I, we know 1.6 billion seconds or minutes or whatever of the terminal list were watched. Uh, but but there, there's so much we don't know about Amazon's data and what it means that what they attempt to tell us is virtually meaningless. But on the other hand, once again, sure, it absolutely makes sense that uh, Lord of the Rings, before you die, that you watch the rings uh, is I uh, hit, whatever the bleep that means. Huzzah and congratulations to all and sundry.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's also not surprising that they would put out a press release, you know, touting it, considering they've, they've spent more than half a billion dollars on this show. And there's what the five season plan plus the spinoff, all this other stuff, you know, already in the works. Like, yeah, I'm shocked that they reported big numbers for a property as big as Lord of the Rings. But the bigger thing that, that for me, like I, and I, I mentioned it, like when you go to Amazon, the homepage, whether it's on a desktop or mobile or whatever, there's. Lord of the Rings is—it's right there, it's right in your face. Imagine if they did that for all of their other content, right? Like, what if, like, when League of Their Own came out, boom, here it is, League of, League of Their Own reimagined, whatever, on the homepage or whatever their other shows are. What if they actually made their TV content easy to find for people who are logging on to go buy another order of masks or toilet paper or whatever they're going on to buy it, you know, for Amazon? It's to, it continues to be baffling to me how that, how that service survives with all the money that they're spending and no one basically watching and doing any kind of look at internally what they're spending their money on. I mean, remember there was that, that year where. Jen Salky was like, you get a first look deal and you get a first look deal and you get a first look deal. It was like everyone in town had one, actors, producers, like it, it made no sense, you know, to me. And it's it, it's just let's spend a bunch of money on a bunch of shows and maybe some of them will come out and maybe some of them won't.
3: Remember the the Romanoffs? I just like to periodically (laughs) mention that the Romanoffs was a show that existed. And not just that it was a show that existed, but that the creator of Mad Men, one of the five or ten greatest shows in television history, has done one show since Mad Men, and it was the Romanoffs on Amazon, a show that existed.
2: Yeah, I mean, look at all the things that they've greenlit in the last couple of years, and where where are a lot of those shows? I mean, there was a trailer this week for The Peripheral, right, which is the Lisa Joy, Joy Jonah Nolan show. They, of course, did Westworld, but like that that thing's been in the works for what five years? You know, come on. Plus, how many other how many other scripted originals have already changed showrunners? It, it's like a running gag at this point.
3: It is indeed, but A anyway, kudos
2: to good kudos to the 25 million people who watch 30 seconds or or five seconds of Lord of the Rings, the Rings of of tools and Rings of things,
3: Rings of anyway, things,
2: Rings of things. I digress. Up next,
0: number two,
2: the end is in sight for Hulu's Emmy-winning drama, The Handmaid's Tale.
0: I think we're we're winding down towards the end. You know, we're getting down towards the end of the story.
2: That was Handmaid's Tale showrunner Bruce Miller talking to us last week about the future of the series, and now it's official. The Elizabeth Moss star will officially end with its sixth season, with the news, of course, coming ahead of the show's season five debut on September 14th. Dan, this is an iconic show, to say the least, the first streaming show to win the Emmy for Best Drama. What do you make of this?
3: Yeah, it's, it's a landmark show and there is absolutely no question of that. And I'll talk a little bit about the fifth season when we get to Critics Corner. Um, it, you know, it's, it's not a show that's remained the most consistent of shows over the years. On the other hand, it is a show that has remained a consistent Emmy favorite and that has won many Emmys. You mentioned the drama series Emmy. It won an Emmy for Elizabeth Moss. Uh, Alexis Bladell won an Emmy. I, I, Feel like it's won a couple other, well, it's won a handful of other Emmys over the years. It won a bunch that first year. That was, that was sort of juggernauty. But the other thing about the show, and this is the very clear thing about the show that's always been clear is that it always was a finite show. And it was a finite show for any number of reasons. It was a narratively finite show. It simply could not go on forever. There was only so much story to spin, both from the book in general, but also just You know, making things up, it it could only go so far. And more than that, it was also a show that because of its its extreme heaviness as a piece of drama, which was only amplified by connections to the real world, that, you know, we're always going to be there to some greater or lesser degree. Instead, we're there to a greater degree. And Bruce Miller talked about that a lot in our podcast interview. It was always a show where it was going to induce some measure of viewer fatigue at a certain point. People were simply going to say, "I, I just can't do this anymore. It is it is a loss, and that is in no way reflective of its quality. Hell, it might even be a reflective of of the positive nature of its of its quality that the show the show that was supposed to be an unwatchable show about a horrifying thing that was uh, happening in a dystopian future that maybe was connected to things happening in our real world that it was a tough show to watch. Well, okay, that must mean they were doing something right. So honestly, one could easily make the point that probably this should have been a, a four or a five season show. But if they felt like they had enough things to do to make it a five or six season show, and as I will say in my review when we get there, this is a fairly different fifth season or a, a fifth season that's different in a lot of ways. Um Yeah, it's it it had to end this was this was not a show that that was ever destined or designed to go the showtime yeah we'll just let it go on forever until it has a disastrous ending i mean showtime could have let this show run for 8 to 10 years and by the end you might have resented absolutely everybody involved with it um case in point several different showtime long running dramas and so i <laughs> dexter <clears throat> among others i mean homeland is another show that definitely ran Four seasons too long, several others. It's kind of just a thing that Showtime used to do. Whether Showtime still does it, uh, well, I mean, Showtime would have to have long running hits capable of running 10 seasons for that to be the case. But something like The Shy is shameless. Shameless absolutely had a had a long run uh, and something like The Shy is, I believe, going into or was just renewed for its maybe sixth season, I feel like. So they do have some long running hits. Let's not let's not poop all over Showtime here. Anyway, we're not. And Of course,
2: the it. reason we're talking about Showtime is because The Handmaid's Tale was originally in development at Showtime.
3: Before yes, that's exactly why I'm talking about Showtime here. That was not why I was talking about Showtime here. But isn't it nice that you were able to find the serendipity in my babbling? I appreciate that. Thank you that's for what making I do. That's it. Thank keep- you, Dan. Is is that is that your job here? I babble and you find meaning in it. Okay, I can vice versa. I can accept that. That's a that's a totally (laughs) that's a that's a fine working relationship, Leslie. In conclusion, though, yeah, this this was it it was it was time for them to set an ending. It was time for them to say we're not going to go on forever. There are still so many aspects of the show, even when I am mixed on the show in general that I appreciate and respect so much Um and I, any, any show that's going to end before I have the opportunity to 100% resent it, I am strongly in favor of that.
1: <laughs> Number three.
2: Up third, TV's biggest night is only days away as NBC is set to air the primetime Emmys on Monday, September 12th, with SNL staple Keenan Thompson set to host. And before we get to Dan's rant about the busted TV movie category, you know, like Chippendale's Rescue Rangers, Really? Let's take a brief look at the leaders after two nights of the creative arts categories were handed out. So, in terms of content by program, you've got the leaders Adele, one night only, with uh, Euphoria, Stranger Things, The Beatles Get Back, and The White Lotus, all tied with five apiece, Arcane, which is sadly canceled, and Squid Game with four apiece, followed by Barry and only Murders in the Building with three each. And in terms of wins by platform and conglomerate, Warner Brothers Discovery leads all with a total of 28. And for those fo- like me who are following the HBO versus Netflix, you've got 23 for HBO proper with another three for HBO max specifically followed by Netflix with 23. So HBO proper and Netflix tied with 23 each followed by Disney with 22. Of course that includes Disney plus, which had nine Hulu, ABC, national geographic, etc. Obviously, HBO and HBO Max and Warner Discovery leading all winners so far is not a surprise, considering both HBO and HBO Max collected a whopping 140 total nominations. HBO proper clocked in at 108, and that was enough to edge the 105 mentions that Netflix collected. So that's a little stage setting. And now for a quick refresher, Succession is the most nominated show this year with 25 followed by Ted Lasso and the White Lotus with 20 each. Hacks, only murders in the building with 17 apiece. So, Dan, we've got some big categories to break down. Our listeners, I'm sure, will will be doing their own Emmy ballots. You know, let's take a look at some of the big categories and have you, well, Debate yourself about who will win versus who should win. Of course, beyond Rhea Seahorn for Better Call Saul in the supporting actress drama category.
3: Wait, I was I was promised a, I was promised a Chippendales uh, rant. When when did oh, that? Oh, I get? mean, you're gonna do that too. But go on. <laughs> well, there's no more context to do it if we're simply projecting forward to uh, to Monday's show, and this this is backward looking. No, uh, look, I, I made fun of Chippendale winning the original telefilm category um on twitter and a number of people wanted to come and tell me but Chippendale's it's actually good it's far better than it needed to be and the thing is those people are 100% correct there is no question that Chippendale that movie thing was smarter and more clever and more and had more creative freedom than there was any justifiable reason for it to have. Absolutely, completely. That is true. That is not the same as being worthy of being permanently enshrined in the Emmy rules. What that is worthy of, this is just my opinion. You can feel free to disagree. It's totally fine. Um, if, if there had been a six nominee field in that category and five of them had been kind of prestige stuff and Chip and Dale had slipped in, I absolutely would have gone, that is a fun nomination. That is, that is really cool that they were able to see that that is better than it needed to be. Cool. But for it to win. And not just for it to win, but for it to win, I would say, probably fairly logically. Like, if you look at the things that it was going against, it's the thing that nobody had to make excuses for of those things. It's not like the, well, at least they gave that an ending or, well, that was the TV series that I didn't really need a new 90-minute movie for.
2: Right. Of course, it was nominated against Ray Donovan, the movie Reno 911, The Hunt for QAnon, The Survivor, and Zoe's Extraordinary Christmas.
3: Yeah, so like and and the Survivor is sort of there and that is the that is the traditional thing, that HBO does a a two hour movie and it is guaranteed to be nominated and usually it's guaranteed to win. In this case, and this was also the case a couple of years ago with The Tale, the Laura Dern uh movie, basically it's a movie that Netflix acquired at not Netflix, that uh that HBO acquired at Sundance and said we're not giving this a theatrical release. Sorry if you had Oscar Hopes, Ben Foster, etc. Uh, but we're putting this on TV, so now you have Emmy Hopes. Well, Ben Foster didn't get a nomination either, and that's a little strange. But but my my rant is not about Chippendale, and, and it's not even really about the Emmy voters voting for it. It's about the fact that the category no longer reflects The way that people do business on TV. It is not, there is not a robust original movie landscape. There are a lot of things that get made for Amazon or made for Netflix. And for whatever contractual reason, part of how they're able to get them to make it is by saying, we'll give this a token theatrical run or we're going to treat this as a movie and we're going to put you up for Oscar consideration. There was the, uh, Hulu emma thompson thing that didn't get a theatrical release domestic but there were petitions so that it wouldn't be an emmy contender so that emma thompson would be eligible for an oscar because that was simply worth more i don't understand why it's worth more it shouldn't be worth more the prestige shouldn't be greater this is 2022 but either The Netflixes and Amazons have to start saying, here are the five movies that we're putting up as our Oscar contenders, but here are the five movies that we actually believe in that for whatever reason we don't think are theatrical releases, but we do think could be Emmy originals. And suddenly then you can have a category in which there are 50 contenders, because heaven knows there are a lot of movies that went direct to streaming in the past couple of years. But the way it was, it's gotten to the point where it's a category that nobody wants to be a part of and so there as a result you end up with a nomination slate that is it's embarrassing looking whether the quantity whether the quality of anything is embarrassing that is a, the the list of things you just listed is an embarrassing list of nominees because it says people simply aren't doing original movies for television they're doing wrap-ups from TV shows they liked or let This is sort of a 90 or an 85-minute thing. Let's call it a movie. They're not movies. They're not movies for television. And if the only alternative is some generic HBO direct-to-HBO movies, sometimes you get good ones. The Liberace one, for example, was a, a really good movie.
2: Behind the Candelabra. Yeah.
3: Exactly. But a lot of the things that have won that have been HBO movies, you know, a lot of things with Al Pacino uh, playing famous people nondescriptly just aren't good either. And so if the alternative to Chip and Dale winning is a generic HBO movie winning, that's not better either. Anyway, uh, it's the category that's broken. It is not really Chip and Dale's that's broken. Where do you want to go next?
2: Yeah, look, why don't we start with best drama series? You got the nominees Better Call Saul, Euphoria, Ozark, Severance, Squid Game, Stranger Things, Succession, and Yellow Jackets. Dan, who should win and who will win?
3: It should be noted that our colleague Scott Feinberg, who would normally do the uh, the will win, he is in Toronto for the Toronto Film Festival. So I'm wearing both Feinberg-related hats. Uh, you can tell in some cases when I'm spelling my last name F-E-I-N, in some cases where I'm spelling it F-I-E, uh, and also, I am not going to be very good at predicting what's going to win. So please don't put money on anything uh, for the drama category. What should win and what will win are probably the same thing. Uh, I think it's succession. And my normal rant, as always, applies that succession is a comedy that is neither here nor there but it is absolutely and totally a black comedy and should be in the comedy series category, which would just confuse everybody. I think that's that squid game. There's obviously a tremendous amount of affection for it. And I think that, uh, per, that it's very possible that if this had been a vote in January, that squid game would have had the momentum to win. Um, I, I don't know that it has quite that momentum anymore T- to me, the dark horse, honestly, there for the will win is either Euphoria, and you can see that because of the technical things it's won, uh, or Severance. And I think you're going to be able to tell this early in the Emmy night because I think that Ben Stiller is going to win for directing for Severance, and I think that's going to be a win. But I think you'll be able to notice that if Severance wins a few of the acting prizes that it's up for – that suddenly it could step up. Like suddenly if John Turturro wins for supporting actor, if Patricia Arquette wins for supporting actress, if Ben Stiller wins for directing, suddenly then sitting at home, you can go, hmm, Severance could win the whole thing. I, I think that Ben Stiller is going to win, but I think Succession is going to win a lot of things. Uh, but I really, really, really would like for Ray Seahorn and uh, Bob Odenkirk to win, but we'll see how that goes.
2: All right, let's move on to best comedy series. The nominees are Abbott Elementary, Barry, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Hacks, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Only Murders in the Building, Ted Lasso, and What We Do in the Shadows. Dan, same question. Who will win? Who should win?
3: Yeah, this is this one is is really tough. And it's and these are both really good categories. I have reservations in both drama and comedy about some of the shows, but uh, but. These are good categories, and I feel like probably Abbott Elementary has momentum. Like, I think if you were to ask me who has the momentum, it would probably be Abbott Elementary, TCA Awards, other random Motley Awards. Uh, I, But I, I don't think it has enough Momentum. I think Ted Lasso is kind of the leader in the clubhouse, and probably it has an advantage. If I had a vote in the category, if I had a vote in the category, I'd vote for Reservation Dogs. It's not there, so neither here nor there. Probably my vote would go for uh, would go to Barry, and I think it's going to be kind of a a, ma- a real showdown at the end of the day between Barry and Ted Lasso for what's going to win. Um, just leaning towards Emmy complacency. I, I think that Ted Lasso is. Going to win, uh, and that Abbott Elementary might win one or two awards in other categories. And so that'll be how it'll break down. And I think if I had a vote, I think it would be for Barry, uh,
0: probably.
2: Uh, up next, best limited or anthology series. The nominees are Dope Sick, The Dropout, Inventing Anna, Pam and Tommy, and The White Lotus. Who you
3: got? Um, if you read our colleague like Scott's, uh, first brutally honest Ballot earlier this week.
2: Yeah, the the Pam and Tommy dig was
3: uh wow. It, it was silly. I didn't think it was. A, I didn't think it was a, the the best example of that particular genre. I think those are always very enlightening. But I think the thing I did find enlightening there was the criticism of White Lotus's placement. Um, and it speaks to two things, because the complaint was basically, why is it in this category? They're making a second season right now. And what HBO would want to tell you is that it's an entirely different location, an entirely different cast other than Jennifer Coolidge, and therefore it's eligible. I'm not sure that it actually is. If Jennifer Coolidge is playing the same character, I don't understand how White Lotus is actually eligible here. I thought that was the thing that ruled it out. But I think the lack of communication clarity Wherein a lot of people really will just go, okay, they're making a second season. It's in the wrong category. I really. It's do. an anthology. It and that is what they're going to say. Except that if there is a consistent character who is the main character across them, it's not an anthology. It's an ongoing drama series with a different location. It should not be in in this category or an ongoing comedy series actually, because it also should be a comedy. Regardless, my vote in this category would still be for The White Lotus. You can only vote for the things that are nominated in in this category, and without any question, my vote would be for. The White Lotus. It is my favorite thing here, followed by the dropout. Uh, dope sick is, is going to win. It, this is about as much of a sure thing as, as you can have. I will continue to say over and over again, I think that dope sick is a bad piece of television. I, I think it is really, really clumsy storytelling on almost every level, but it is also important storytelling. You, you can be both of those two things at once. It is an important story. And I understand why it moved people and it is going to win. Michael Keaton is going to win. Some of those wins are uh, Danny Strong is almost certain to win either for writing or directing. I think probably Mike White will win at least one of those also. But Dopesick is going to win that category without question.
2: And now for the four big acting categories, actress in a drama series, Jodie Comer for Killing Eve, Laura Linney for Ozark, Melanie Linsky for Yellow Jackets, Sandra Oh for Killing Eve, Reese Witherspoon for The Morning Show, and Zendaya for Euphoria. Who are your picks?
3: I think Zendaya feels like she's probably the leader but I think they're that winner Melanie ca- former winner in this category, former winner in this category, etc. And also the, the things that Euphoria does to its main characters, sometimes I find them exploitative, but they also give all of the main characters an awful lot of acting to do. I, I think that there's going to be a lot of affection for, for Melanie Linsky uh, for very, very logical reasons, both because. She's sort of a, a long term industry veteran who's who's gone through everything and come through apparently as both a normal and a charming person. And you you cannot put money on that. Um, but also because there's clearly a lot of affection for Yellow Jackets. And I don't know that there's a place in which Yellow Jackets is going to get recognized. You recognize Melanie Linsky there. It helps. Um, I, I, I would guess, Zendaya, that, that is, that is my guess. If I had an actual vote, probably it would be Melanie Linsky, but that might be affection speaking. And, and I might actually think the Laura Linney for Ozark, a show that it's well established overall, I am at best tepid on, uh, she acted the, the snod out of all of those seasons of that show. And I, you know, it, it, it feels, it feels to me like it would not be unreasonable for her to end up with an Emmy for
2: it. Yeah. One of my favorites, of course, from the big C which was, again, another great uh, performance that was pretty much overlooked. Um, And now going into the best actor in a drama series, your nominees are Jason Bateman for Ozark, Brian Cox for Succession, Lee Jung-jae for Squid Game, Bob Odenkirk for Better Call Saul, Adam Scott for Severance, and Jeremy Strong for Succession. Dan, who will win? Who should win?
3: Um, Ultimately, Jason Bateman's the only one who I don't think deserves to win. And even he ended up with one spectacular scene that if that was in his submission episode might push him over the top because everyone loves Jason Bateman. Um, I'm kind of wondering if the swirling narrative around Jeremy Strong is going to cost him a win. I I think he's probably – Right up there with the Squid Game star, but you know what? I'm just gonna say Bob Odenkirk deserves to win and will win. I, I think that I think that the combination of great final season for Better Call Saul, great performance from Bob Odenkirk, and just the the outpouring of affection and warmth when he had his health crisis on set, and you know there were a the couple days where we were just crossing our fingers and hoping that he was gonna be okay, and we're all so happy that he is. I think that that's the sort of thing that doesn't produce pity. It produces the memory that it's important to (laughs) it's important to let people who are awesome know that they're awesome. And Bob Odenkirk is awesome on Better Call Saul. And if the show ends with him uh, without him winning an Emmy, it will be bad. He's got two more chances, this and the second half of the season, which will be for next year's Emmys. So we'll see. But. I think I I think he's going to pull it out on both being entirely deserving and entirely sympathetic slash affectionate.
2: And now we've got Best Actress in a Comedy Series. Your nominees are Rachel Brosnahan for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Quinta Brunson for Abbott Elementary, Kaylee Cuoco for The Flight Attendant, Elle Fanning for The Great, Issa Rae for Insecure, and Gene Smart for Hacks.
3: This is going to be interesting. I think it's I think this one is going to come down to either Quinta or Jean Smart. I think Jean Smart probably wins because she's Jean Smart. The question of whether she wins because of the second season of Hacks or just because people like Deborah Vance and they like the show. I'm not sure. I, I think she's tough to beat. My, if Quinta Brunson wins, it is a recognition of all of the different hats that she wears on the show and the affection for the show. Uh, to me, my own vote, if I had one, would go to Elle Fanning, and I because I thought she was just remarkably good in the second season of of The Great. I, I think just an amazing performance. I think that a lot of the buzz around that show has has kind of dissipated or been usurped by other things, and so I think we're probably just supposed to go, okay, it's good that she and Nicholas Holt were both nominated, um, but something else is going to win. But honestly, a- any of the winners in that category would be deserving. Probably Rachel Brosnahan a hair less, just because just fatigue. Uh, but Kaylee Cuoco was was amazing in the second season of of uh, Flight Attendant, better I thought than even in the first. Uh Issa Rae, always great on Insecure. And this is their last chance to recognize her for that performance. So th- there there are lots of good choices there.
2: And wrapping up with a who will win versus who w- should win. Best actor in a comedy series. Donald Glover for Atlanta. Bill Hader for Barry. Nicholas Holt for The Great. Steve Martin and Martin Short, both for Only Murders in the Building. And last year's winner, Jason Sudeikis for Ted Lasso.
3: I think. Bill Hader is the will win and and should win here, I I think. And and to me, as great as some of these performances are, I I think his performance might just be in a different category at this point, especially when you add in his directing, his writing. I I think he is going to win for directing on a comedy. And so that might be the thing that hurts him where someone goes, okay, we're going to see him on stage. He's going to be great. He'll get that fine. Now let's go with someone with only murders. But I it's I'm not instantly sure who the pick would be between Steve Martin and Martin Short. And so I kind of wonder if a lot of people are going to be like it sort of split the difference between them. I can't choose. Who do I go with then? Yeah,
2: they cancel each other out. Exactly.
3: And or uh, either in a literal sense where one gets five votes, the other one gets five votes. And as a result, the person with six gets it. Or if they cancel people out in the I can't decide between them. Therefore, I'm going to go with the other person. So uh, I I think Bill Hader probably wins and probably deserves to win and he's terrific and this past season of Barry was great so
2: so your big winners there dan it sounds like a, it'll be a big night for hbo and warner media which again wouldn't be surprising but we will see how it all shakes out on monday and of course we'll have a full wrap up on next week's tv's top 5 in the meantime you can bookmark thr.com/emmys for full and comprehensive coverage
3: Emmy nominated executive producers on ABC's Abbott Elementary and executive producers and outgoing showrunners on HBO Max's Harley Quinn. They previously co-created Fox's short-lived surviving Jack and worked together on the CW's iZombie. Welcome back to the podcast, Justin and Patrick. Thank you for having
4: us. Thank you.
2: So this this feels like a good time to have you you both back on the podcast because, well, the playoff races are heating up in baseball. That's How are right. you both feeling about the Padres and the Cardinals?
4: <laughs> oh, God. I think, I just hope we sneak in. The Padres just sneak in. We're up like two games in Milwaukee. It seems like they really want to give up, but we also want to give up. <laughs> so it's, it's a war of who wants to give up the most. It's depressing.
2: And meanwhile, Goldschmidt's going for the Triple Crown.
1: Yes, I was, uh, I, I really like Paul's chances.
4: Paul. <laughs> You don't Goldie. know him. Don't Goldie. call him Paul. Goldie.
1: I mean, yeah, Goldie. Uh, I like to call him Paul, though. I, I love his chances. Look, I am uh, I am very spoiled as a Cardinals fan, I will say. Uh, there, a lot of success over the years. Uh, best fans in baseball. We're very humble about it, too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a lot. There's a lot to love this season. A lot to look forward to. I, I was telling you off the chat that uh, I'm going to the Dodgers series, two out of three games, and I hope to see Pujols hit 700 in front of the Dodger crowd. I think it would be a monumental.
2: That'd be awesome. Uh, just yes. as a baseball lover, that'd be amazing.
1: I'm
3: I'm only invested in him getting past Arod. That's the only thing that really matters. So once he does that, I will I will give him a standing ovation in my living room. 700s just a number, but getting ahead of A-Rod has actual meaning. I think,
4: <laughs> but Arod's at six ninety nine, right? Uh, 670,
3: 696, I think. Yeah, yeah oh, so. he doesn't have seven hundred. One more oh. time,
1: then, right
2: now. Yeah, yeah no, it, yeah, he's right there.
3: Going yeah. going into the All Star break, it looked like it might not happen, or it looked like it might be close, and then apparently he's found the fountain of youth, or. Whatever. Just like Tatis
4: did, <laughs> oh, yeah. Ringworm, sure. What, okay. What
3: exactly are you implying, Justin? Are you are you about to tear, break our hearts about the best hitter of our generation?
2: Oh, stop that, Dan. <laughs> I'm
3: talking about Pujols. I'm not talking okay, about. that's fine. Don't talk about. No, no Tatis. <laughs> Tatis is a is a young punk, but maybe he will grow up. He's gonna mature. anything could happen
2: sure well funny timing because you guys are joining us because well it's emmy week and you are the executive producers of abbott elementary which has gone from a little broadcast sleeper to possibly a favorite for outstanding comedy series so you guys have already won for for casting at last weekend's creative arts how are you both feeling heading into the big night
4: I mean, man, I would say, correct me if I'm wrong, Pat, like uh, Patrick and I, this is, we've been working in the business 14 years. This is our fir- first time ever being nominated for anything, uh, any Emmy. Uh, so I think we might've been nominated for a Razzie for Shit My Dads. <laughs> this, is <the> <laughs> um, I, this is unbelievable. I can't, I, It's just like, I'm so like happy for, I mean, you guys have had Quinta on uh, before and she's just like the real deal, just the very best kindest uh most genuine person so i'm glad like you know sometimes this happens for people who you know within the industry aren't your faves um and uh she's just like the best i mean i i
1: I, she deserves it so much and now we'll name our top five least favorite people in the industry (laughs) (laughs) go on (laughs) Um... No, it's it's pretty phenomenal. I mean, we've we've had a good run thus far leading up to the Emmys. Uh, we we did quite well at the Hollywood Critics Association, uh, several other other award shows. So I I don't know if momentum's a real thing. I do think that we have it, and and it's been pretty awesome to see, especially uh, knowing that you know it's been a while since a broadcast show has been kind of in this position, and especially a first year show. I mean, I never I never would have expected. Uh, quite this much this much love and attention but it's it's been awesome especially like from the the education community um hearing the response from teachers um hopefully they're they're all emmy voters
2: i don't know that i see a big cross
3: (laughs) 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 so what are your big emmy night plans who are you wearing and who are you most looking forward to meeting
4: can i just tell you i'm uh, in terms of what we're wearing Oh no. uh, I, first off, I went to uh, Bloomingdale's, the Glendale Galleria. And the uh, woman behind it? the counter, uh, yeah, the woman behind the counter said she would try to find something for me, but I have an unusual build. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, you could have just said she would try to find something for me. But uh, So I'm wearing an off-the-rack uh, John Varvatos, and I was excited to come in and tell everybody about it. And then Pat went and got a Tom Ford suit and I look like an asshole.
1: I got a tuxedo, Justin. Oh, sorry. Not just a suit, a tuxedo. Okay. All right. And That's- when I gave the when I saw the, the bill, because I didn't look at the sticker <laughs> on the tux. And I saw the bill and I was like, please decline my card. <laughs> and then it went through.
4: Did you have cartoon steam coming out of your ears?
1: No, so I did I did turn red which is kind of my default color, but I went like beet red. And, uh, and I did immediately on my phone, as I was leaving the Tom Ford <laughs> on Rodeo Drive, email my accountant and say, this charge is real. And if I wear this tuxedo 700 times, it will be worth it.
2: But also it's a tax write-off, right? Because this technically is a work expense.
1: Damn, you might be right. That's well, I leave
4: that to my accountant. <laughs> Leslie, he, you just saved Pat so much money, Leslie.
2: Uh, well, if you have an extra ticket to that Dodger game, you know who to call now.
3: <laughs> has, th- has this always been sort of a way you would define the differences in your respective personalities that Justin, for an event like this, goes to Bloomingdale's and goes off the rack and Pat has to go and, you know, get all fancy and whatnot?
1: Oh, yeah. I think when, when people describe us, they always use the word sartorial when they're describing me. Uh, and Justin, um Unusual- slob.
3: Unusually <laughs> shaped, apparently. Yes. <laughs>
1: Yes, I have a very right. gorilla-like body, but uh, the good people <laughs> at Tom Ford did not mention that. That's what you. That's why you. Pay. That's
4: what you're paying for. Really, is you're paying for no one to verbally not humiliate not. you. Yeah. Yes, at Bloomingdale's, they're like, "Come in here, you stinky piece of shit. Let's get you suited up." <laughs> it's not like you went to Men's Warehouse, Justin. I
3: mean, <laughs> come on. are gonna
1: like how you look, but not how you smell, because we can't do anything <laughs> about that. <laughs> Today's uh,
3: TV's Top 5 podcast has been brought to you by Men's Warehouse. (laughs) (laughs) Men's Warehouse. Emmy Night is coming up. So who are you guys looking forward to seeing at Emmy Night?
4: (laughs) I'm actually looking forward to seeing some of my friends who are nominated. Uh, (laughs) um, Jen Statsky from Hacks and Jane Becker from Ted Lasso and Bill and just a bunch of people that we kind of like are friends with and came up with. It will be just cool to see them in that context.
1: Yeah, I I am uh, hoping, hoping, hoping to get to shake Steve Martin's hand, uh, Bill Hader as well. And uh, they're not my friends. I've never met them before. (laughs)
2: <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ju- but- but Justin, you did mention, you know, uh, Bill Lawrence, who obviously is a friend of the five and co-created Ted Lasso. Have you done any sort of trash talk w- with Bill, you- who you guys have collaborated with in the past? You want to know what's crazy
4: is our writer's room for Abbott literally shares a wall with with uh, Ted Lasso. So because they're both Warner Brothers shows. So at some point I just walked up the stairs and went into the Ted Lasso offices and then, yeah, I talked to, uh, I spent a little time shit-talking Bill. Bill. Bill needs to be shit-talked. That's yeah. the reality of it. The man is, t- is way too confident. Needs to be shit-talked.
1: <laughs> I've tweeted some, uh, some Dominic Toretto gifs at him uh, in, a, in a taunting fashion. Uh, it is, uh, like, the walls are very thin between uh, our, our two writers' rooms, and uh, we've, we've had uh, people from Dozer ask us what we're laughing about, and we said, our show, which is hilarious. <laughs>
3: you know it'd be a good way to get back at the ted lasso people i'm thinking season four spoilers so what do you got
4: <laughs> no you know what's crazy is we actually shared our writers our first six weeks were in their old writers room and they left up the board that had their entire season broke it and so then quinta quinta texted brett goldstein and was like hey, you just left up this board. Is this important? He's like, fuck, that's our whole season. He's like, throw that away. Don't let anybody see that.
2: I think you mean Emmy
1: winner Brett, Brett Goldstein. That's right. That's Emmy right. winner Brett yeah. Goldstein. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, I was about to give away a spoiler, but we, I promised them that I wouldn't say that uh, Ted Lasso kills Coach Beard. <laughs> <laughs> That
3: would really turn the the fan community against it. Also, Pat, I noticed that you wanted to make a big deal about all of the Hollywood Critics Association awards that you guys won, but not tis, all tis. of the TCA awards that you guys also won. Tis,
4: tis, I was, I, yes, I am very excited about all awards given to us, but the TCA, that, uh, that was really cool, especially because um, mostly I remember sitting in front of uh, the TCA panels and looking out into the, darkness where we can't see any of you, but questions are being lobbed to us and being uh, terrified
1: and wanting approval. So that was, <laughs> that was really yeah, good I'm, to win those. I'm bitter that the in-person awards were canceled, Dan.
3: I, and, and I'm a little bit sad about that. So, okay, which TV critics were you most disappointed you didn't get to meet at the TCA Awards, Pat?
1: Hmm. Uh, Pat has an answer for this, mm-hmm. I bet. Uh, you know, well, I don't, He probably Steppenwall wasn't going to be there, right? Seppenwall wasn't gonna be there. Also, you've met you Alan. You know Seppenwall. I don't, I have never met Alan in person. Wait, how is that possible? Justin has had dinner multiple times with Alan and Dan. I was not present for any of those meals. And Alan and I like, we 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 text each other now all the time about Harley stuff. I've never met him in person. So that, that's who I hope would be there, but you just said he wouldn't have been there. So <laughs> We'll we'll
3: find a way to make that happen. I think I think that we we, we know Alan. Whenever he's around, we'll find a way to, to please, set that please. up.
2: Also, I'm gonna pretend really quickly to just not be offended that you didn't say me or Dan. So that's, that's
1: okay. We can <laughs> oh, we can move. I mean sure. Also,
3: absolutely. I feel like I feel like we've met. I, I'm really okay with the,
1: the degree of meeting. I've done your done. podcast before. I was in a fugue state when I did but I I now I <laughs>
2: Yeah, that was in our old building in, in like
4: 2019.
2: Yeah. Oh. Well, let's get back on track a little bit here. So when you have a show like Abbott Elementary, what is the arc that your expectations go through eventually to believe that this level of acclaim is possible going into Emmy night against the Ted Lassos and the Berries and the Curb Your Enthusiasms of the world?
4: I mean, I think it was like, well, first off, we assume everything we're going to do is going to fail because that's usually what happens. And so that was, I think, first. But I think, you know, I remember seeing the pilot for when we when we finished shooting the pilot, we got the first cut of the pilot of Abbott. I remember it was me and Pat and Quinta all texting each other, being like, I think this is pretty good <laughs> and then it was kind of like as we more episodes we saw cuts of more episodes because remember we were mid-season so we didn't know how any it we had finished all the episodes before it ever aired and I remember thinking like you know we've done Pat and I have done this long enough that I think we have a pretty good idea of when we make something and it doesn't turn out the way we want it to and when we make something and it's like oh actually this came out pretty well but I guess I just never never in my wildest dreams I was like there's just no network shows that get this sort of surge towards the Emmys. And so that's been the most shocking thing for me is that it, it's done this. And I think part of the thing for me is like, I think that there's a really high degree of difficulty in a, in making a network show pop through the noise. Um, and, and I think that it's a, it's a, it's a challenge that other shows on streamers don't necessarily have to face, and so I'm glad that you know people have sort of looked at it and been like, "Hey, they did. They made a really good show." And there's a lot of restrictions on what you can do on a network show. And I mean, that's a testament, I think, again, to to Quinta's vision for this always having been a network show. But it's it's been wild to see this reaction. Yeah,
1: and also like you know, this this is a co production between Warner Brothers and, and and 20th, and it's been evident. Yeah kind of from the beginning of this whole awards campaign how much sort of heft uh, Disney is putting into this campaign Um, you know the events that they've put together I mean I I literally I've tweeted this out before but like when we were down at Comic Con and they did the Abbott like activation uh, which was they recreated sort of the school in miniature and I went through it and I was crying because the level of detail and care that had been put into this activation that was in the middle of comic-con yes like every show is represented there not just genre stuff but like there was a three-hour line of people waiting to go through this you know workplace comedy activation down at comic-con it was just phenomenal and i I think yeah once once i started going to these sort of like events that you know disney was was putting together it it became apparent that like you know they were they were going to keep our our uh our show like in the in the forefront um yeah. And then, of course, Wendy O'Brien, our casting director, winning a creative arts Emmy this past weekend. It's like, oh, OK. All right. This is this is for real.
3: What was the Comic-Con experience like actually getting to be among the people who are fans of this show?
1: It was phenomenal. I mean, um, you know, I, we got we got sort of special treatment where they let us kind of. We sk- weren't with the Hoy polloi, Dan. <laughs> Don't be silly, Dan. Uh, they shut it down. They turned those people away, and they said, <laughs> "You guys, do? no." Um, I, I mean, it, it, it was unreal. Like you know, you would you would kind of overhear the fans, um, you know, pointing out little in jokes and whatnot that had been incorporated into this activation. Which you know, for instance, they had recreated Mr. Johnson's, uh, you know, uh, electric box or you know the breaker with all the you know boys to men lyrics and all that. You could you could press buttons and, and like essentially like play a game with it. Uh, they had taken fan art and put it in sort of a display case at the end of the hallway, like it was student art, um, you know, but, but yeah, hearing, hearing the fans kind of like pointing and reminiscing about like their favorite little joke that was like, you know, we thought was like a throwaway joke or now everybody on earth knows who Jim Gardner from the ABC action news in Philadelphia is um, it's pretty phenomenal.
4: It's definitely a different vibe than the Harley fans that we get. Cause like the Harley fans were like, "Hey, I drew this picture of King Shark with two erect penises, and it's for you." And you're like, "That's really awesome." I don't know what I'm gonna do with this. That's not the Abbott fan experience, but uh, yeah.
1: it's Ain't definitely some erotic Abbott fan fiction. That's true. Cross to match the Harley stuff that exists.
2: But of course, you know, when we had Quinta on, you know, she was telling us how this was originally how Abbott was originally supposed to be an animated comedy and I think you guys were the ones that c- that came in and said, "Well, what if this is live action and what if you're starring in it?" I mean, after yeah. your experience on Harley, you know, and obviously you're working on a, on a spin-off of that too, and that's also going to be animated, but like when did you what what gave you that feeling that you're like, you know that we do have lightning in a bottle here. Quinta, there's something here with you specifically that should be live action?
4: Yeah, you know, I think it was it was part of the reason why we were like, oh, let's make it animated is because when we were first all three of us talking about it, you know we were like, ah, the subject matter of schools and kids, especially kids this age, it's so sensitive that maybe we need some distance to create some distance between the viewer and the show and animation allows you to kind of do that, right? Like you watch Homer Simpson strangle Bart, you feel one way, you watch a human actor strangle a child, human child actor. You're not so, you're not laughing anymore. So I think we've thought that, but then I think as it kind of went on, it's like, this is, I, Quinta, I think, I, I think when it's all sort of said and done, Quinta's going to be on the level of like a Julia Louis-Dreyfus, like a Lisa Kudrow, uh, Ted and like that level of, of sitcom performer, because I think she's able to take things that really should, in lesser hands, would be played a little dour or a little maudlin, and she can make them funny. Uh, It's like a superpower almost, watching her do it on set. Um, And I think when we realize, like, oh, wow, this is such a special performer that if we're doing it animated, we're taking away 90% of, like, what makes her so special... Uh, and that's why we were like, let's just do a live action. And she didn't even want to star in it. She didn't even write it, want to write it for herself to star. And we were like, no, (laughs) you got to be the star of the show. You can, you, you're going to crush it. It's going to be great. Um, and so I think that's, that's really when we were like this, this performer is so sort of spectacular that we, we have to let audiences really just take in everything that she can do.
1: Yeah. I think it was also just a pragmatic thing too, when she brought it to us as an animated show, like we were all kind of working on other stuff. And at the time, I think um, Quinta had a a, a pilot at, I want to say it was CBS CBS with Larry Wilmore. Um, And it it was just a function of like, I don't, I don't have time to do another live action project if this other thing moves forward. So, you know, if I'm to perform on this, like obviously animation, you know, voice records, you can kind of, knock out an episode in an hour with someone. So it, it, it was, it was a function of that as well. And then, you know, the timing of it didn't end up working out for everybody. So then a year later our, our slates were a little bit more open and Justin and I were looking for a broadcast show and we had, you know, serendipitously, we, I, you know, I ran into Quinta on the lot, like, as she was like, I think she was working on a, on a feature, writing a feature for Warner brothers at the time and, she doesn't really drive much, so I was like, do you need a ride home? And on the ride home, I'm like, hey, have you ever thought about uh, doing Abbott?" or then it was called Herity Elementary, which is the name of Quinta's actual elementary school in Philadelphia. Have you ever thought about doing it as a live action? And she was like, uh, I was thinking about that like yesterday. And then it was kind of like, handshake, <laughs> talk to you next week. And, and we were we started working on the pitch as a live action. And she always wanted it to be a, a mockumentary. Even as an animated show, she kind of it was still, to- yeah, still documentary, yeah. So, how would you guys say the past
3: year has changed Quinta and changed what she does or doesn't need from you
4: guys as executive producers? I don't know that she
1: ever needed us.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's funny, like I, you know, I think we have a really good sort of three-headed monster, right? Like you know, I kind of stay in the writer's room. And I'll constantly be running things down to her, pitching things with her. I mean, we also have a lot of pre-production. So she's there for every day in the writer's room for the first probably like 12 weeks. And then after that, um, she's on set writing. And Pat is kind of bouncing back and forth between the two of us. And so I think we've kind of found a good groove. I mean, for us, like, I kind of look at our job. I think I've said this before. Is like I look at our job as kind of like, you know, somebody gets off a plane in a new city, you're traveling and you jump into the cab or Uber, I guess now. Uh, and, and, uh, and I'm sort of, Pat and I are sort of the drivers who are like, where do you want to go? What kind of things you want to see? Where do you want to eat? And it's like, oh, I'd love to get Italian. And then I want to see a show. And we're like, okay, I'm going to take you to the best show. I'm going to show you how the best way to get to the Italian food. And so that's kind of our job, right? Is helping her get her vision on screen. And, and, you know, I think that's where we, we we're most valuable on the show is like in running the day-to-day of the show with her. Um, Cause really it's sort of the three of us sort of co- co-show running, show running together, you know? Um, and it's really like worked well. And I think at some point Pat's right. It's like the further we go in the show, it's like the, you know, she's, she's such a sort of preternatural leader, I think. And so, we just sort of have this symbiotic relationship where we need to say less and less to one another in order to get it like the way we all want it.
1: Yeah. I think she's also such a student of the medium, particularly half hour comedies. And she has such an encyclopedic knowledge of, you know, those who've came before that, you know, she, she just sort of, it's second nature to her, that form, that form of storytelling um, and her instincts are just are, you know, generally extremely spot on um, despite, you know, having only been doing this now officially for, you know, a year and a half. Um, So that's been really impressive. And obviously she wears like every conceivable hat on the show. Um, And so, you know, we started the writer's room in April, you know, with the idea that I think this came from like, like Phil Rosenthal's biography. He talked about how like on Raymond, they'd basically go down for like a couple of weeks or whatever, and then just come right back to it. And they, you know, had easy hours and could live their lives to get material from it because they just would start the season in the writer's room so early. So we tried to do that knowing that we were going to lose Quinta, um, you know, as soon as we started production in July. And so, yeah, we, we started the room in April and we've had the luxury of having her in the room, like, you know, for several months before we started production. And, you know, and then as a function of that, we've been able to, like, bank a lot of scripts Whereas, you know, in in past broadcast comedies, we've only, you know, been ahead by like a week or two. This, it's like, you know, here we are, we just shot episode seven and we have uh, 11, episode 11 is almost to a table draft. So, you know, we're, we're really ahead of the game. That's a credit to, you know, what Justin's doing, leading the writer's room every day um, as well, just kind of keeping the trains rolling. And then having that luxury of like, we can now go back and like, add some stuff to like our, our season premiere, you know, the the runtime of our season premiere was long and we had to cut some stuff and we started to have to cut story. And so we were able to go back and do some reshoots to, you know, to tell that story efficiently. And it was only because we're we're now so far ahead because, you know, we started early and we've been efficient. So that's been kind of a a cool thing that's happened this year. Uh, We still want more hiatuses if you're listening to brothers, but yeah.
4: Channing Dungey, we need more hiatuses.
2: You know, and at the same time, you know, you're talking about obviously how much you're working with Quinta and you're running Harley. And then you've just handed over uh, the next season of Harley Quinn to one of your longtime writers and exec producers. You know, how you guys have made a a pretty rapid transition from being mentored by the people by people like Bill Lawrence to now being the ones who are mentoring others. How gratifying is that to be at, at this stage in your career? And what would you say you learned from Bill?
4: No, that's, that's the best part. Uh, I think like, you know, the longer, I feel like the longer he and I, we both say this, the longer we do this, the less we feel like we have something we really need to say with our vo- with our own voices. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, you know, the ideas come along every once in a while then Pat and I are like, Oh, we need to be the ones who write this, but more often than not, it's like somebody has something to say that's more interesting than what we have to say. And so we're happy to, um, be able to like help people do that and really like kind of provide a space where we're sort of guiding them through the process. Um, and I think that's the, you know, it's funny, our first show running experience was on surviving Jack in in 2013, where Bill Lawrence was our, was the EP. And I remember Bill Lawrence saying to us one time, he was like, uh, if things go well, then we're going to say it's you guys. And if things go bad, just blame me. And and it's kind of the, it, it sounds like very sort of like simplistic, but it, it, what it happens in a writer's room, what happens on a show is very insular and people who aren't working on the day-to-day of the show, they have no real idea of what's going on. So sometimes people get blamed for things that they probably shouldn't get blamed for. And to have somebody who's kind of has the standing to say, Hey, I can take hits and it's not going to affect my career, but I know that you can't take hits because it will affect your career is I think a really nice thing to be able to give to younger writers when you're kind of yeah. helping them go forward. And
1: that's why ultimately we blame Bill a hundred percent for why yeah. was canceled. it was his fault. <laughs> also, I blame Bill for Our,
4: shit. My dad says, even
1: though he wasn't involved yet. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, th- one of the things that I, I, I took away from Bill, like I, 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 I definitely, uh, I still succumb to this sort of imposter syndrome, and I really succumb to it like early in our career because I, I was it was fraud, and uh, <laughs> and, and but, but working with Bill, like there is, there is this kind of confidence that he has that that it, it is infectious, and this kind of. Um, I don't know this. I, I don't know what's going on internally, but he presents as if he is like the most cool customer, and I really appreciated that. And I really appreciated never feeling like he was in panic mode for anything. And I, I feel like I, I I was able to kind of uh, suck some of some of that energy from him uh, in, in in more recent years in our career. I, I that is something that I really appreciate from Bill. Cause I think he, he's, he's somebody who, I, you know, he's very active in mentorship and very active with like the WGA. He was a, you know, teaching their show running program. And he was all, he would always sort of use John Wells as like a counterpoint, a philosophical counterpoint to him with show running, where he's like, John Wells teaches like organized show running and I teach chaotic show running. And I, I, I just, I don't know. I, I appreciate that. I am not a, a chaotic person. I, I find that I, 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 you know, if I walk into something like feeling unprepared, I just, Like crumble. Um, But I've slowly been able to chip away (laughs) at that, um, you know, uh, character flaw, let's say, particularly in the context of this job. And I I credit Bill with kind of teaching me that that stuff.
3: Before we transition to to Harley, I want to just ask one more question about Abbott. and, And specifically, the question is, when you're in pre production on a second season, when you're giving the network and studio scripts on a second season, what kind of leeway does, you know, X number of TCA awards, X number of Emmy nominations, all of the ratings, what is it buy you? What were you able to do in season two that season one, you just couldn't do because they didn't know?
4: Well, you know, what's funny is I think part of it is like, you know, Aaron Werenberg and Wendy Steinhoff at, uh, at ABC. They, we've known them. They started our career. At Warner Brothers, they bought our first thing. They were our execs in 2009, and so we always had a really great relationship with them. And they were they're 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 great execs because they're the kind who are kind of like, look, we'll give you our note if you disagree with it or you feel passionately about doing something else, then like do it, like make the version of the show you want to make. We're just telling you our emotional reaction to the material that you gave us, and so much of. I think what makes a good executive is just I just want your emotional reaction. I just want how how are you reacting to the piece of material we gave you because that's that's what that's actionable for me and Pat, you know? And they do that. And so I think in a way like certainly I re- like I remember the vibe feeling different after we got all those TCA awards. I remember, but but to their credit, like they've always been so supportive of the show and really like I think at many other networks, I've heard stories specifically about shows getting just shit on by the execs and then they win some TCA's or an Emmy or, and then it being a complete 180 flip where it's like, we love it. Anything you want to do, it's great. Um, but, you know, in this experience, I feel like we really kind of had that support from day one. So no,
3: nothing different. You didn't get to bring, you didn't, they didn't roll out the Brinks truck. They didn't say. Oh, I, want- I took
4: a shit in the middle of Disney and no one said anything. So.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, I have one last avid question before we segue to, to Harley.
3: Um, Wait, you're not going to follow up on the? <laughs> no,
2: I'm not.
4: <laughs> I have no. And, no. And now we're never going to know where. <laughs> you got invited the club 33 right after. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually a special place in Disneyland that's called Club 33 for taking a shit. And that's where I went. (laughs)
2: Yeah, that's Walt's personal toilet, I heard.
4: (laughs) Yeah, yes, that's exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, But wrapping up on that, on the Abbott uh, discussion here, uh, give us a a, what can you tease about season two? Any big guest stars, any storylines? Give us give us give give the fans what they want.
1: Um, I I think. One of the things, and we're not—we're not, we're not going to get into specifics. We've been banned from getting into specifics. We will have some guest stars, some recognizable guest stars. Um, I, I can say that the season two premiere has a beloved uh, Philadelphia celebrity that uh, that fans nationwide, worldwide, will know. The, I'll leave it at that. Uh, and then I think that season two, you know, we, we are going to, we're expanding the world of the show. We're going to start to explore, uh, more of the personal lives of these characters outside of the school. Season one, we were like, not really going to leave the school, uh, kind of no reason to yet. Um, and, and now we're going to get to, to meet some say family members, um, uh, uh, you know, love interests. I'll leave it at that. But yeah, the the world's going to expand.
3: Okay, so congratulations on the season four renewal for Harley, of course.
1: Thank you very much. much. I assume,
3: owing to the amount of time it takes to do animated shows, this was not something you guys were sweating out. I assume this was a foregone conclusion. Where are you guys in the season four process now?
1: Um, We have seen uh, most of the animatics for uh, all ten episodes of season four. Um, the, The writer's room... Actually started. I mean, this is one of the reasons that we bequeathed control of the show day to day to Sarah Peters was that we, when when the Abbott uh, season one production started, that was when the writers room of Harley season four started. So this is like summer of 2021. They've been working on this uh, every day. So it's, it's, it's pretty far along. Um, I think we're about to see full color animation for the season premiere, I want to say in October. Um, and then, you know, so that's when kind of post-production officially begins, uh, in animation. That's what they call it. At least when you get your, your full color animation back from, uh, our overseas partners, um, partner studios. So yeah, we, we are, we are pretty far along. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's some things that that haven't been announced yet that are that are coming out soon and, and uh, that that I'm excited about as well. That don't have to do with the spin-off, but uh, but more of the main um, storyline of, of Harley. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, season four is you know it's been written, um, I, I you know since I don't know for for several months, let's say, and obviously it's animation, so things get get tweaked and get rewritten right until like the last moment as we did in season three. We actually opened the cut back up. And I think the second episode of season three, right before it premiered at Comic-Con to, to fix something <laughs> that we wanted to fix. So, you know, it always goes down to the wire, but uh, yeah, there's a significant um, amount of it that's, that is done and dusted uh, on,
3: on a purely nuts and bolts level. How are you guys dividing your days between Abbott, Harley and, uh, and Noonan's these days?
4: So you know, I think Abbott were there day almost every day. Um, I would say ninety seven percent of the time we're at Abbott during the day, and then at night we kind of like look over all of the kind of outlines and scripts from Harley and Noonans, um, and kind of work on other projects we may have uh, going. Uh, but I would say like you know, season for instance, season four on Harley that Sarah Peters ran. I mean, our our whole our feeling really was with Harley, like we ran three seasons of it. I really felt like we said what we wanted to say and did what we wanted to do in those three seasons. And then it was like necessary to bring in someone, even if we had had the time, I feel like it's it was good to have somebody come in with like a completely different voice and vision to the show, but also somebody who knew the show. I mean, Sarah is such an amazing writer and wrote some of our very best episodes and really like helped us shape Harleen Ivey's voice from the get-go
1: and Catwoman.
4: Um, and Catwoman too. And it just felt like, you know what? Sarah's like got new blood, new energy. She like has a real vision for what she would want to do with her season. So we didn't need to be in the day-to-day because we could kind of just sort of look over stuff with our, you know, we have a development executive, Chrissy Romero, and, and we kind of, the three of us kind of like oversee everything. But most of our time is spent at Abbott because we were trying to launch it.
2: You know, and at the same time, you know, getting that early vote of confidence in a fourth season of Harley must have felt like a godsend, especially when you look at the state of HBO Max right now with everything that's going on with David zosloff post Discovery merger. You know, you know, obviously zosloff is looking to hire a new head of DC film and TV, basically the Kevin Feige of DC, as, as he said it what kind of feedback have your partners at DC said when you've kind of come to them with some of this racy stuff? Obviously there was a, the big brouhaha about <laughs> Batman can't, you know, can't perform oral sex. And now all obviously this season, that's kind of all, all out the window. It's pretty racy. Mm-hmm. But uh, what kind of feedback are you getting from your DC execs? And have you gotten any kind of, I don't know, a, a show of faith that that Harley's not going anywhere, that season four is not going to be the end? Obviously the spinoff, you know, there, is in the works too.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I, I think... HBO Max has been so supportive of the show um, and they have been very open with us about how well it's doing for the service. So I don't think that it's going anywhere um, anytime soon. Uh, You know, knock on wood, we got a call the other day from, from Warner Brothers Animation and they said it was like kind of urgent. And we were like, oh no, we're like, going to meet a similar fate as bad that like all of this work that we had done, it's potentially just going out the window. And then it just turned out to be a call telling us that we were doing really well. <laughs> so that was a huge relief. Um, but yeah, no, I, I you know, it, it seems to really be working. I think, you know, just the fact that it's uh, animation um, automatically kind of helps separate us from like the rest of the, you know, DCEU. And like, we're, we're not ever sort of tied into that, uh, mythology, you know, that's kind of in its own, you know, who, whoever they're able to bring in, um, and our guess is as good as anyone's at this point. Um, you know, I think, I I think that they're, we, we have been told at least that like Harley's safe, um, and the Harley verse is, is safe. Um, so we are, we're very relieved. <laughs> and I mean, we would love to, I, I think we have a, you know, a really good relationship with, with DC and with the execs at HBO Max. And, you know, if an opportunity comes along for us to, to segue into the live action space, uh, you know, within the EU. I mean, Justin and I have, we have ideas. We we would love, you know. I, I think that they need to kind of figure out what's happening over there, kind of holistically, before we can launch into our ideas. But we definitely have them like ready to go in the chamber if the opportunity presents itself. So, that's right. We're
4: openly soliciting work right. from DC in their live action space. Pat also wants to be the new Feige.
3: <laughs> As creators with with two HBO Max. Shows how stressful was that week leading up to the Oh my God. Warner Discovery <laughs> investor call. That
4: that was like one of the uh, worst weeks. I think I even texted you, Dan. Like I was asked you if you knew anything because I was like shitting bricks. I mean, wow that that was that week was. I don't think I've ever experienced anything like that week in my entire career. I mean, the rumors were everywhere. I mean, there was at one point. It was one point where I was having very credible people tell me HBO Max as a service was gone. Like, I was, it was, and that's like my entire job, it means our jobs were gone, you know? And so it was like, I did, I was, I mean, God, I I was freaking out for sure.
3: Is there somebody at that point at the studio, at whatever, who's actually able to provide even small reassurances in a situation like that? (laughs) No,
4: I was like I texted like the highest up exec I could text. And I was like, what's going on? They responded like beats me. I'm like, fuck, <laughs> if, it, if it beats you, what the fuck? Like nobody knew anything. Nobody knew anything. It was, it was, I mean, a testament. It like
1: us. asking the tour guides. <laughs> he He's just screaming out for Yakko, Wacko and Dot to answer him.
3: Whereas you, you, Pat, you were you were pretty cool, calm, and
1: collected the entire time. Well, I am going to be DC's Kevin Feige, so <laughs> there you go. I feel Like I'm in a pretty good place.
2: And you guys have been through this all before when DC Universe, which is where obviously where Harley launched. When that imploded, you know, do you have any words of wisdom for whoever you think is going to wind up in that new D.C. job, aside from letting you guys continue doing Harley and lighting all your live action stuff?
4: That's the most important thing, Leslie, what you just said, is letting us do whatever we want to do. I mean, it's
1: really the bedrock of the rest of D.C. (laughs) I, I really hope
4: whoever is takes that job like loves that stuff, like loves DC, loves making those kinds of movies um, and really like loves the people who make those movies. Cause I feel like, you know, for whatever, like you want to say about how sort of like corporate um, and uh, Marvel stuff is run, like it it still feels like they love that. They love what they're doing, you know, like they love those movies and those shows. And so The one thing I do love about DC that I will say about current DC and DC over the last 10 years is that they will like give you the rope to hang yourself, you know, like, and, and, and they let you take big swings. And sometimes I think that allows you to make, make, allows people to make amazing movies. And sometimes obviously those movies don't come out as well, but I feel like you're allowed to really like take your shot. I hope that stays.
1: Yeah. And I like, and you know, shows like Peacemaker, like, you can't do that at Marvel. Um, It's just totally off brand for them. That's why it'll be interesting when, when Deadpool, Deadpool three happens to see if it sort of preserves its identity, but like, yeah, like, like peacemaker really excited me. It did well for the service season two is happening, you know, it's in production now. And I think, I don't know that, that gives me hope that, uh, you know, because that's working, like whoever does come in is going to, is going to let that continue. Um, but yeah, I echo what Justin said that, you know, you just, you have to be a a super fan. Um, so
4: that's why Pat should do it.
1: Either me or, or Alan (laughs) Seppenwall. Who you
3: would like to meet someday. Someday.
1: Ah, Fingers crossed.
3: (laughs) Well, it seemed like there was at least a tiny bit of Harley DC stress when the battlingus uh controversy (laughs) broke was there ever any actual tension that you felt as a result of that and and where do things stand now
4: (laughs) that was also a tough couple days um the funniest part of that whole thing was i was like pat i think we're in trouble and pat was like we yeah (laughs) (laughs) that man unhitched to me so fast um (laughs) yeah i had to make a couple apologies and stuff it was like uh it wasn't i don't know you remember it wasn't great
1: (laughs) yeah it wasn't great but it certainly kept the show in the conversation it was like every time we thought it was gonna end a new late night talk show would bring it up i think john oliver was like number like six of six that like well then
4: uh zach snyder commissioned a that piece where Kat, Batman's going down on Catwoman, I was like... Yeah, it was
1: hashtag canon on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, it's, I it's learned my lesson. It's on giving. People yeah. still bring it up.
3: Yeah. Well, but <laughs> given this season, it felt like there was an awful lot of raunchy stuff, particularly with Harley and Ivy, but I would say more in general across the entire third season. Was there anything this season that raised any eyebrows or or after that little brouhaha do you guys kind of have free reign?
1: I mean, we, we always have conversations with them. They're, they're never going to, you know, blindly let us do whatever. I would say the thing that raised eyebrows this season, cause it's not really a spoiler anymore is that Bruce Wayne is kind of the chief antagonist of the season. Um, and you know, obviously Batman is a very important piece of, uh, IP or so I hear. Um, and, and, you know, they're going to be really protective of that character, but, uh, you know, the credit to them for for letting us do as much as they uh, as they have thus far. You know, we it's but it's yeah, it's always a conversation. And uh, one, one of the executives over at DC, uh, Mike Carlin, who's kind of our covering executive, uh, told me before he's like, every time you guys send a script, I have like a like a heart palpitation. <laughs> but it's you know it's. It, we talk and 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 we try and find a, a middle ground if we have to but those conversations are genuinely few and far between
2: was there anything that they said no to this season
4: yeah there was yeah there was one thing or actually maybe we just we we might have actually put the kibosh on it we originally in this in the show they're making a movie about thomas wayne bruce wayne's father and at the very, at the la- you know, there's a scene where Bruce goes to the opening of this movie. And you know how, like, at the arc Light, they'll have the uh, glass cases with the actual costumes worn from the film. So he's walking in, and he sees little Bruce Wayne's costume. And there's, there's piss stains on it. Because in the movie, when Bruce watches his parents killed, he pees himself. And Bruce Wayne is seeing that, and he's like, I didn't pee myself. Like, that didn't happen. And then... When the movie ha- they, he's watching the movie and the scene happens, and little Bruce keeps like <laughs> pissing himself. and we were like, "You know what? this is just too mean. I think we need to like, I know Bruce is a fictional character, but <laughs> but this just feels like too far. And so uh, I think we all, DC included was like, maybe Bruce little Bruce Wayne doesn't pee himself when he yeah, watches,
1: because the original him. pitch was like a Team America style like montage of just gushing urine. <laughs> It was so bad.
4: <laughs> Looking at your reactions right now, I feel so good about the fact that we cut it and, and that it was too horrible. <laughs> Seeing Leslie want to turn off her mic and walk away <laughs> is letting me know that we made the right choice in cutting this out of the episode. Of I mean, Harley. it's
2: somewhere with, with Walt's golden toilet, right?
4: That's right, <laughs> That's right. yes. <laughs> it's flushed down Walt's golden toilet.
2: I see what you did there. Nicely done. <laughs> I don't know how you follow that, Dan, but go ahead.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, they did show a lot of faith in you guys, DC, by finally letting you guys reveal what happened to Bruce Wayne's parents, which I feel like was a large question in the fan community for all of these
1: years. <laughs> <laughs> Why are keeping it under wraps, you know, it explains so much of Batman's character. And no one had ever shown what happened to them,
4: and we were the first to do it we got to really make Batman's origin story, if you think about it.
3: <laughs> so when did you decide that you wanted to wade into those waters? And when did you decide that you'd found a way to to crack an approach to the story where you could simultaneously make fun of how often we'd heard the story before, but still have something in it that you felt was new?
1: Well, I, I give a lot of credit to uh, the writer of episode 308, uh, Batman Begins Forever, uh, Jameson Borak, um, who has been with us. He started as our, our uh, script coordinator on the show and then season two started writing episodes. And uh, he is uh, is someone who is uh, has immersed himself in this lore. And I think he was watching Joker, the Joaquin Phoenix film, uh, when it really hit him like uh, just how potentially oversaturated the origin story of uh, Batman uh, and, and the, and the death of Thomas and Martha Wayne can, can be sometimes. And uh, yeah, he, I think he had made it his goal to kill Thomas and Martha the most amount of times in a, the span of a, a, of a half hour <laughs> show. And that's kind of where we started. And that's, uh, and, 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 and yeah, it felt like, um, you know, it's like every season we, end up using Dr. Psycho to go inside the mind of some character. And it felt right, um, you know, to do Bruce as he is the chief antagonist. And as his relationship with Harley, this season starts to evolve where, you know, she now knows his secret and her secret is safe with her due to, you know, Dr. Patient confidentiality, but then she, you know, proves herself to be on some level, a, a trustworthy person, which plays into her arc this season. But, uh, yeah, it was just uh once we kind of connected those dots and then also brought in this idea of of making it a tribute, you know, the the world inside of Bruce's mind is is essentially a, an homage to Batman the animated series. It became like, you know, just too delicious to to pass up and I I still think that the whole like Ivy, Joe Cool, Joe Chill Joe Camel debate that happens that is then interrupted by gunshots <laughs> murdering Thomas and Martha Wayne is like hands down one of my favorite things we've ever done on the show. Um, I love this. This, this, this episode is my favorite episode of, of the series. It's, I, I don't like to play favorites, but and I love every episode of the show genuinely. But I think this one is like, I, I've said before, I'm like, I want to be buried with this episode. <laughs> It's maybe it's our our legacy.
3: When they say, though, that you can play around with this origin story, are there certain things that you can't play around with? And apparently, you know, massive urination everywhere is sort of your own line on that. (laughs) But does DC have lines of of things that you can't say happened on that night?
4: Yeah, no, absolutely. Because an original pitch was we thought it would be really funny for the movie that they're walking out of to be Ernest Scared Stupid. <laughs> that, like, it would be so funny if Batman's parents were murdered because they had gone to see Ernest Scared Stupid. Um, and, but he, uh, I think, like, DC was very much like, look, we need to... Uh, adhere to the canon, you know, like we, we, they didn't want us to like reinvent the story. Right. And we didn't want to reinvent the story. The whole point of the episode was that we weren't reinventing the story. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, you know, I think they're, they're more careful about like what you can do with the heroes than they are with the villains, which is why one of the reasons our show is sort of mostly villains is like, it's a playground for us and we can kind of do what we want. As soon as you start bringing in kind of the big five, over there you know there are some like limitations in terms of of what you can say about them what they what you could show them doing um but we that's not really where we like to play so
1: yeah had we gone with Ernest scared stupid um did you ever dance with the devil or have you ever danced with the devil by the pale moonlight would have been replaced by know what i mean Vern. <laughs>
4: <laughs> we pitched on movies for them for them to be walking out of. It was like Ballistics X versus Sever. Freddie got uh, fingered. Freddy got fingered. <laughs> uh, boat trip. Uh, we had uh, eight heads in a duffel bag. We're <laughs> trying to think of like any movie that was just like so inconsequential or stupid. And that's the movie you because you know what life is random and sometimes you're walking out of Ernest scared stupid and someone murders you. It just happens.
3: That's dark. Uh, yeah, we like to end these interviews. With the same question, did Harry Styles really spit at Chris Pine at the Don't Worry Darling premiere? Yes or no? 100%. Yes.
4: Yes. I yes. saw it.
1: We all saw it. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Absolutely. Also, spitting, it's like such a, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it feels even more aggressive than a punch, just to, to spit. To
1: yeah, like COVID
4: age. I'd rather age than... be punched than spit on, I think. Absolutely.
2: And now the right version of that, what have you guys been been watching and enjoying outside of your own programming?
1: Uh, I've been really enjoying watching Harry Styles spit on Chris <laughs> <month>. um, <laughs> uh, i uh, The bear. Uh, I, I had COVID and I binged the bear for uh, over two days. That was, I thought, phenomenal. Um, I'm I'm very much enjoying Rings of Power currently. Uh, and I also, I was remiss in that I was so far behind on what we do in the shadows. And we work with Harvey Guillen, he voices Nightwing on Harley. Uh, I had the chance to hang out with him at the Hollywood Critics Association Awards, not the TCA's because they didn't do those in person. Uh, but, um, I, I'm catching up on what we do in the shadows and enjoying the hell out of it.
4: And I, uh, I had to catch up on the second season of Hacks, which is fantastic, uh, and I love that show. Um, and then I'm actually... I think it was because the bar was set so low, and, or my expectations were set so low, but I'm very much enjoying House of the Dragon. Uh, and, um, yeah, I'm trying to think. Oh, also uh, the latest season of Alone, the reality show where everybody's stuck. I, I also like... I also like that. Uh, I can't watch anything until my kids go to bed. They're getting older now, and it's like 830-ish. I'm not enjoying this Padres season. If that's,
2: <laughs> I am.
4: <laughs> yeah, I know you are. <laughs> I know you are. But I'm excited to watch them lose to the Diamondbacks tonight. That'll be fun. Oh,
2: brutal. <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much again for joining us. It was a blast.
4: No, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank
1: you, guys.
2: The third season of Harley Quinn concludes September 15th on HBO Max, and the second season of Abbott Elementary premieres September 21st on ABC.
3: Number five.
2: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Lots to choose from this week. You've got Tell Me Lies on Hulu, the final season of The Good Fight arriving on Paramount Plus, Peacock brings Matthew Fox out of retirement for Last Light, the new season of Cobra Kai kicks off on Netflix. Apple returns to Central Park. Fox kicks off the fall TV season with Monarch. Showtime's troubled American Gigolo checks in. And then you've got new syndicated shows fronted by Jennifer Hudson, Sherry Shepherd, Drew Barrymore, and Kelly Clarkson. And of course the Emmys on NBC. Dan, where where should people spend their time this week? Phew,
3: sweet Jeebus. And you didn't even uh uh mention the yeah, The handmaid's mentioned. tale. Handmaid's tale, exactly. Uh so let's let's start there. Um I've watched four of the episodes of the new season of Handmaid's Tale. I'm not going to do a, a full review because at a certain point, you know, you, you know the things I think. Uh, one of the things that's interesting to me about the new season is that it feels like a, a tighter season. It feels like less of a, Elizabeth Moss's June against the world and more of a June versus Serena Joy, that being the character played by, uh, played by Ivan Strahovski. And so I, I think that that makes the season feel different. And I think that's actually a, a really, really good thing because, you know, there's, there's always a certain amount of, I don't want to say seamness, but, a, a certain, churn that that show has because there's just so much there's so much misery to it and while elizabeth moss has always found ways to make things funny in her character it it can be a lot i found it interesting that the thing i kept comparing these episodes to is cape fear which is an odd comparison but it's also a showdown between two people who both go over the edge and at different points, you can find different rationalizations for either one of them being the villain and either one of them being the hero. And they're basically playing mind games with each other. And you know, it's going to have a horrible ending at some point because things are bound to get tragic. But so if you take the Cape fear uh, mantra and you kind of, I guess, make Evon Strahovski's character because she begins the season incarcerated to some degree if you make her into either the robert mitchum slash robert de niro character and then you make elizabeth moss into the so-called protagonist of the story the the good guy Um, it's, it's fun to watch it in that respect. It's also fun to watch because Elizabeth Moss and Ivan Strahovski are both absolutely fantastic. And so that is where the pleasure of the show has always been, even when the misery of the show was so great. You could always go, I will watch these people act. I will also watch one of the most beautifully shot shows on television, and that will be enough for me. I think that is, that continues to be the case. But basically the pleasure of this season is watching Elizabeth Moss and Ivan Strahovski bought uh, buttheads and they absolutely do, and it's fantastic. And then you have kind of the secondary storylines where you have a lot of Madeline Brewer and and Dowd, and they're both excellent as well. So many of the supporting performances at this point are are just so wonderful. Uh, Samira Wiley, seeing her character Moira's increased concern about the dark turn that June is taking at this point, it, there's just. A a lot of enjoyment to watching the acting on the show, even when the weight of the show is sometimes too much. So I think the Cape Fear-type structure of the season really does give you a chance to somewhat disengage from the real-world dramatic heft of it. And whether that's for the best or for the worst— for the creators, it's hard for me to say, but definitely I think it's good for viewers. I think it's good for viewers to be able to say, I'm going to enjoy this kind of as a Clash of the Titans drama more necessarily than the weightiest, most relevant drama in the world. So um, I there, there were a lot of things I liked about kind of the different feeling to this season of Handmaid's Tale. Uh, Good Fight has already premiered its return, but I, I liked the first episode back. I, I think it's a it is a a great show that sadly has simply gotten lost in the Paramount Plus of it all. It, it just there was no way that that show was going to find an audience under those circumstances or was going to find kind of a big picture momentum in the same way as Good Wife did. I think that end of the day, Good Fight is going to stand as a better show than Good Wife, and I think we are always going to be baffled that Christine Baranski received all those Emmy nominations for Good Wife and none for Good Fight. What can you say? Uh The new season adds Andre Brower, who's just a lot of fun, um, both his outfits and his glasses, but also just watching Andre Brower in this phase of his career, having... This opportunity to be funny when he never used to think he was funny. I remember interviewing him after the first season of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and he still at that point was baffled by the idea that anyone found him funny. Um, he absolutely should. He is, I mean... In addition to being one of our great actors, he is one of our great comic actors as well.
2: And just really quick, there's a fabulous interview with the Good Fight creators, Michelle and Robert King, over on the website by our uh, colleague, Mikey O'Connell. That's definitely worth a read. So you can find that on THR.com.
3: Absolutely. They are always smart and reflective showrunners. Um, I have watched none of the current season of Cobra Kai. I don't want to say that I'm protesting against the fact that they screwed up our annual tradition of having the three showrunners on our uh, beginning of the year podcast, but they totally did. The, the show is supposed to come out at the very end of December, and we're supposed to have the three creators on our first podcast of the year. That is That is how this is supposed to work, guys. Why did you mess that up? So... That annoys me. Anyway, I'm going to watch the new season of Cobra Kai. I've seen almost
2: all of it. I think I'm I still have the finale left to go. It's great. It's just it's a it's a perfect binge.
3: I am. I'm looking forward to having it as uh, currently I'm working my way through Never Have I Ever as the as the TV show that I'm not writing about, but that I can watch a half hour of to somewhat turn off my brain. I think when I finish Never Have I Ever and I think I have two episodes to go in the most recent season of that, I think I will turn over to. Cobra Kai too. I finished that one already yeah. too. There's just there's just too much TV and and a lot of it is is really bad. So let's talk about some of that. Uh, I mentioned um, Peacock and their environmental drama Last Light, starring Matthew Fox. It it already premiered. Uh, my review took the uh, sort of Woody Allen Annie Hall. Um, the food here is terrible and such small portions joke as being basically my review here is that my review is not an angry Dan review because the last, because last light is only five episodes. They are all under 44 minutes. And so if nothing else, it only took a Saturday afternoon for me to watch. Uh, it, it's horrible and it's horrible in a, in a way that is completely inept, like someone at. This is honestly someone at NBC Universal. This is someone at a production level dropped the ball where someone had to say, this is not how this story could be best told. Let's tell it better. Someone dropped the ball on this is an environmental thriller. Why do you forget about that for three episodes at a time? And then why is your climax like a recruitment video for a non-existent environmentalist company instead of an actual dramatic climax? Someone had to step in on that. Someone had to step in and point out that it has, the show has like five main characters. It's like a party of five, as it were. Um, and they, I see what you did there, Dan. And they barely have characters. So you've got, um, Matthew Fox and Joanne Froggitt and the actors playing their, their kids. Maybe there are only four of them because maybe it's only a son and a daughter. Regardless, it's, it's bad. They have like, one-dimensional characters. But then there are supporting characters in this show who I'm not sure anyone bothered to name. They're in, like, two, three episodes. They have no names. They have no characteristics. They have anticlimactic arcs. Uh Someone had to say, why are you introducing this person if you're not going to do anything with them? Why are you introducing this character if they have no personality? And why are we having these two-minute conversation scenes with Characters who have no personality talking horribly still to dialogue. It's, it's a, it's a bad show. And if I talk about it more, I get angrier because it's so inept. Um, but again, it's only five episodes and they're really, really short. So do we have a candidate for worst show of the year here, Dan? It would be, it would be in a discussion. I, I don't, again, it doesn't make me angry. And so that means that like in, in two to three months, the chances of my even remembering this show exists are close to nil. So, um, and also if I'm being honest there, it has competition for the worst show of the week because Fox's Monarch is dreadful and it's, it's badly conceived on every level. It is full of clumsy, bad performances, hammy Southern accents from actors who should know better. Uh, there was a decision made to, instead of having any original country songs to mostly have the characters singing, mediocre not interestingly arranged covers of familiar songs that was a bad idea Uh, so you know you have characters being uh, like let's sing our biggest hit song and then the hit song is i feel like a woman Uh, like what do you what is the point that you think you're making it's uh yeah it is it is a Badly written. Music badly, downloads. Badly driven. Revenue
2: well, streams from music downloads. Yeah,
3: but you can do that also with original songs. You think, uh, you think, whatchamacallit, you think Nashville didn't make a lot of money off of the original songs that it recorded? It most certainly did. That was But a, you
2: think Glee made a shit ton more money on the covers that they released?
3: Probably true, but the, the Glee covers, they did mashups, they did new arrangements. So, you know, having a, having an acapella club uh arrangement of song X, Y, or Z is completely different from having a let's have someone record a Trisha Yearwood song as their original song, even though the audience, of course, knows that it's a Trisha Yearwood song and they're not going to be fooled into thinking it's an Anna Friel as a country singer song. Uh, it's it's bad. I've, uh, But uh, sort of the disclaimer on this one is I've watched three episodes. Uh, there are still three more that I'm going to make my way through uh, because I am a, a pro. And so when I actually do my review, there's at least a chance that the three episodes find an actual voice. Um, because this is a show that had sort of a, a twisty creative journey and long pauses and stuff. So... So yeah, maybe, maybe it will get better. Uh, so I, I hope it will get better. I hope that, I hope it gets better. I hope I write a positive review and then everyone can be confused that I have a positive review in online and a really negative review on the podcast. Who knows? It could happen, but also I'm not really sure what's happening at. regarding original scripted programming and and at what point we just shrug our shoulders and say they're just not in the business anymore because yeah it's just not a thing they do um so yeah monarch's not good uh american gigolo is better than monarch and it is better than last light it is also completely and totally pointless unfortunately um it was always of questionable point it's you know it's kind of an extension of a movie that very very few people remember. I I mean, yes, older audiences remember and yes, some younger audiences probably went back and watched the movie because it's part of uh, Karina Longworth's most recent season of the You Must Remember This podcast. She did a whole episode on it. It's a great episode. I hadn't seen American Gigolo in 20 years. I went back and rewatched the movie because of the podcast episode. So, you know, podcasts are powerful things. Uh, it It has very little to do with the movie and really and truly doesn't do anything interesting with it. I mean, that's the thing there. There are plenty of opportunities to do interesting things. The movie was such a 1980, 19, early 1980s relic and referendum on both general sexuality and on sex work. And kind of, there's room to say okay, what is the 2022 version? What are we saying about sex work in 2022? What are we saying about male sexuality? What are we saying about the male gaze and the male gaze when we're attempting to sexualize a main male character? Instead, A, a and this is first of all, there should have been a woman who wrote and directed this show. It should have been a... A female showrunner and a female director using John Bernthal as commentary. Instead, it is a male writer-director, and they don't really have anything to do with John Bernthal. It's a, so John Bernthal has been kind of a professional thirst trap for a couple of years now, and it's just this is just not a, a good vehicle for it. And they've instead basically turned it into kind of a, a murder mystery, which is the background of what the movie is. The movie has a murder mystery in the background. There's no question about that. Hector Elizondo is investigating a murder and he isn't sure if Richard Gere's male hustler committed it, etc. Whatever. Here, it's the foreground and it's an uninteresting foreground and the actual grasp on what it means to be telling this story in 2022, there, there's none. Um, and so it, like, it's not badly made it's well shot it's sometimes stylish the supporting cast is interesting rosie o'donnell's having this really in- interesting moment at this point where she's popping up and supporting roles on things and you're like ooh. Good to see her.
2: <laughs> and a great. I'll spoil it now because it's been out for a while, but a, a great cameo uh, in A League of Their Own at Amazon, where she does not reprise her character from the movie, but plays a, a really pivotal role and a great one and does it fabulous with the material. Episode six. I can't can't stop talking about episode six of A League of Their Own. It's just one of my favorite episodes of television this year. And it's and largely because of Rosie.
3: And she and she's good here. She's she's good. Somewhat confusingly, she's playing. Basically, the Hector Elizondo role. It's, it's sort of the same name. A- and you just have to go, okay. So someone thought we need a, we needed a proactive female character here. And probably that's true. It can't just be the, the women who hire this hustler. But at the same time, to do a story set in 2022, Los Angeles, in which there was a main character who was Latino and to take that aspect out of the story is perplexing to me. I I don't really get that, but there are a lot of things I, I simply do not get about this adaptation. And so it goes. Um, God. So, okay. That was, that was a, that was an American gigolo. Isn't good. Monarch isn't good. Last light isn't good. Um, and, uh, and Handmaid's Tale is Cape Fear. So, There you go. Absolutely. Handmaid's Tale, best of the things that I recommended this week. But so it goes.
2: Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, definitely check out and subscribe to The Hollywood Reporters. Now see this newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for full coverage. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's top five, The Hollywood Reporters TV podcast.
3: Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. They do help spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter. Come let us know what's working, what isn't working. But if you have questions for future mailbag segments and they're beginning to pile up, which we appreciate, you can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie.
0: 18 plus.